Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP. Thanks for joining us in this episode of AJHP Voices. Today, we'll be discussing the article, Considerations for Implementation of Vancomycin Bayesian Software Monitoring in a Level 4 NICU Population Within a Multi-Site Health System, which was recently published on hhp.org. Our guests today from M Health Fairview Masonic Children's Hospital are Dr. Meredith Oliver, Clinical Pharmacy Specialist, Pediatric Antimicrobial Stewardship and Infectious Diseases, and Dr. Elizabeth Hansen, Clinical Pharmacy Manager, Pediatric Acute Care. Meredith, Elizabeth, welcome. It's nice to talk with you this afternoon. Thanks so much for having us. (laughs) We said that in perfect unison. (laughs) (laughs) Meredith, maybe let me start with you. And just setting the stage, can you just talk about the role of vancomycin in the care of a neonatal population? Sure. So vancomycin really comes into play for our neonates who are maybe more rarely infected with MRSA or methicillin-resistant staph aureus, but probably most commonly in our NICU population for staph epi. Staph epi is the most common pathogen that we see that causes late-onset sepsis or really an infection greater than 72 hours of life in our NICU population. So that's really where we're using it. It is our standard therapy here at M Health Fairview for late-onset sepsis empirically. However, I think a lot of stewardship programs across the country are, are kind of exploring and transitioning away from Vanco to maybe an anti-staph penicillin for gram-positive coverage in the setting of late-onset sepsis. There's been some recent really interesting data that's been coming out. Nationwide Children's Hospital majors and colleagues did a really cool study exploring and showing that nafcillin was was a great empiric agent. And so keeping that in mind, you know, we want to try and minimize vancomycin use as much as possible. But when we do need to use it, I think it's best that we optimize therapy as best we can, mainly for that methicillin-resistant staph epi and then more rarely MRSA. Got it. And with that in mind, in your introduction in the article, you actually talk about some of the challenges with the vancomycin nomograms, which have been around for quite a while, and trough-based dosing in this population. So what are those challenges? So some of the literature has shown is these nomograms that you would otherwise find, you know, Neofax, anything on Redbook, standard dose recommendations that you could find from tertiary sources, we're not providing the best doses to get us to what we previously were targeting as our troughs, whether that's 10 to 15 or 15 to 20. And so with that, I think pharmacists were having to play catch up once they get levels and then increase the doses to then target that level. And so could we be doing a better job with Bayesian software? We believe we can. And so your focus and what you selected was a software for model-informed precision dosing. Exactly what is model-informed precision dosing? So model-informed precision dosing, or otherwise referred to as MIPD, is really the concept of individualizing patient 
doses and taking their patient factors into consideration when coming up with a dose. This is really a newer concept. Previously, it's it used to just be a one-size-fits-all model, but we're really getting away from that and changing over to MIPD. And therein lies the informed component of model-informed. Exactly. So, Elizabeth, what criteria did Masonic Children's Hospital consider as you went through the process of selecting MIPD software? Yeah, so I think we started these conversations, you know, even as far back as like the mid-2010s, trying to come up with, trying to think about what that would look like if we were to choose a software. When it came down to when we were making the decisions, one of the really big deals for us was additional medications offered. So specifically for our institution, we have a very large bone marrow transplant population, and we had the very strong desire to be able to use the software also in our for our busulfan kinetics. And then also, I think there was general interest in some of the other areas. You know, what could it possibly do for things like warfarin or immunoglycosides or immunosuppression, things like that. We were also very interested in what kind of analytics it could give us, knowing that we support a decent amount of academic research. You know, what kind of what kind of information can we get back about how well we're doing on it? As I mentioned, we have some pretty special populations here, including bone marrow transplant, including neonates, patients with obesity, you know, renal replacement therapy, those kind of things. So how well does the software follow that? As always, cost is always a consideration. And then kind of just the ease of use and functionality and how well it can integrate into our EHR. Got it. And to really go through this entire process, selection, the implementation, education of staff, all of those things, you relied on a project team. Who participated on that project team? Yeah, so I think back in the kind of in the selection process, it was some of our system clinical leadership team, and then specifically at our flagship hospital, um, some of the clinical leadership involved with that was kind of the driving force on it. But once we got through kind of what we were selecting, very quickly, many other people became involved. So obviously our stewardship leadership, our antimicrobial stewardship leadership was key. Our clinical managers, we got a project manager assigned to it, um, and then a large number of frontline pharmacists. And when we were thinking about how this was going to roll out, because we were kind of doing multiple rollouts, one for adults and then one for kind of all of our pediatric and neonatal population, we made sure that there were representatives of each of those categories from our pediatrics teams. So when you talk about clinician leaders or clinical leaders at the system level that participated, does that include pharmacists, physicians, laboratory medicine, nursing, or was it a whole interprofessional team that was engaged? To some extent, yes. We made sure to engage everyone. I think something that's unique about the way that we were able to go about this is that at our institution, pharmacists really drive all of our vancomycin use. Um, we have we are automatically consulted on all vancomycin. We order all the levels, and we can actually enter those orders in our scope of practice. And so, with a lot of the education and some of that logistics stuff, it really we are really able to focus most of our education and time on really just the pharmacists. That being said, obviously there's 
also a big component for our nurses and for our providers and our lab. Um, but that was more so in in an informative standpoint. Um, we informed them, we gave them some of our education, but it wasn't necessary that anybody other than pharmacy was able to use the software. Got it. So Meredith, that sort of leads me to another part of the article that I was sort of curious about, and that related to the selection of the model. So, you know, which model you selected, you talk about in the article that later you went on to change the model. And I was wondering who was involved in that decision process? Again, was that pharmacy driven across the board? Was that in consultation with your ID physician colleagues? How did that proceed? Yes, Dan, I would say our antimicrobial stewardship team was the one to kind of review a variety of different pharmacokinetic models and look at which ones are best representative of the population at hand. And specifically, my focus was on looking at not only the pediatric model, but certainly more specifically the neonatal models that were out there in existence. There are a variety of models out there, and I think it was really important to get a sense of how many patients were included in that model, what was the gestational age of the patient population and the postmenstrual age at the time of vancomycin administration? And was that reflective of our patient population here? We're at level four NICU and we see a lot of premature neonates. And so I wanted to make sure that our models were representative of, of our extremely premature neonates as, as best we could. So which model did you go with initially? So we initially went with the Freumeyer model. That was the best one available at the time. So with the Freumer model, there were 1,700 roughly serum concentrations of vancomycin, and the median gestational age was about 34 weeks with a range of 22 to 42 weeks. But since our adoption of MIPD software, um, another model became available, the Jacquois-Agrain model, um, and that one had a even, even more vancomycin serum concentrations upwards of almost 5,000, and the median gestational age was a little bit lower at 30 weeks, range of 22 to 42 weeks. And so not only based on the descriptive patient population in that model, but also how well that model was performing compared to other neonatal models, we went with that one and have been pleased with using that one since. I think listeners or readers who look at your article and want to replicate your work, one of the questions they might have is, how disruptive is it once you've established a an approach and then at a future point, would you actually recommend doing evaluating models, And but at a future point, you evaluate newer evidence and decide to change models is how disruptive is that to the overall use of the software? It's a good question. So with the um, MIPD software that we have, we have the ability to just default a model that we want to use for a particular patient population. So for a NICU patient, based on their gestational age, postmenstrual age, it'll automatically default to the model that we want to use just to really, for us, just minimize the workflow for our pharmacists to try and figure out what model that they want to use. And so with that, it's pretty easy to have a discussion with the MIPD software company and setting an updated model as the standard, and they can default that on the back end. So teasing that out a bit further, because you discussed this in the article, you you actually made a conscious decision to go with one approach to select a model versus 
giving the pharmacist the option of applying different models. And talk about that a bit more and, and why you made that decision. Sure. It was a challenging decision for sure. I think based on our current pharmacist workflow with dosing vancomycin, we wanted to just minimize the time that it took for their own clinical evaluation. And it could be pretty overwhelming to look at a list of models and figure out which ones to use because it would require knowledge of all of those models. Where does this patient fit into each of these models based on their predictive performance, it it can be a little bit challenging. And so we just made the decision to go with one model that fit our patient population best. Now, that's not to say that that's the right way to do it. At other institutions, it may be more feasible to allow a variety of options for pharmacists, you know, to make that decision. But just out of concern for, for time, the time that it would take for that evaluation, we went with that option. So Elizabeth, once the certainly the selection of the model was a key part of the, the process, selection of the software, selection of the model. But we were talking a few moments ago about the team, how the team was comprised. But what were the responsibilities then of the of the project team? What were their core responsibilities? Meredith has alluded to kind of some of those decisions that have had to be made. So I think at the higher level on the team, there's a lot of these decisions like how much data we want to kind of track through the the software, you know, which models we use, how we build out each of those pieces. So I think that was the responsibility of kind of those higher level members um, to make the decisions for the health system, really. And it had to be something that worked both at our flagship hospitals and all of our community hospitals as well. We did have a large number of frontline pharmacists who were involved in the um, in the process as well. Um, and their responsibility was more so um, on the educational side and um, really being that kind of elbow-to-elbow support with our rollout. So being there on the floors with pharmacists when they're like, I mean, you can do all of this education up front, but in the end, when the patient's in front of you and you're trying to figure out how to do this, people, you know, more questions come up or people thought they understood and they didn't. So we really tried to spread them across all the different specialties that we have. And then even went so far as to make sure that all of our shifts were covered. So we made sure, you know, we had people on evenings for the first few weeks who were super users. We had overnight pharmacist super users so that at all times, there was somebody who could answer those like logistics questions or those, those, how do I use this in the first few weeks of rollout? So you've made a couple of references to, to education, but when, and certainly having somebody there side by side, the super user there side by side with the pharmacist, but when you planned out the overall approach, uh, how did you prepare, you know, what were the contours of your approach in terms of preparing the pharmacist for transition to vancomycin AUC monitoring with Bayesian estimations, which you describe in the article as probably one of the most significant changes you made in clinical practice in your organization in maybe a decade. So what was that sort of overall education approach that that you used? I think from the beginning, we knew this was going to be huge, like a monumental effort, basically. So um, we really tried to focus on about a three-month period and how we were going to roll this out. So we did uh, some general education um, with 
um, kind of PowerPoints that we put together either live or um, we had some recorded ones for pharmacists who had problems attending. We had every pharmacist read three required readings just so that they understood kind of where this was coming from so they can answer frontline questions about why we're using this and how this software works and why we feel it's uh, best for the patients. So we did a number of educational sessions and really tracked to make sure that all pharmacists either attended them in live or did them the virtual option. We also had a few from our vendor, some educational sessions that were a little bit more specific to the software training and how to use that. And so that supported that education as well. But really... That was kind of just setting the baseline. I think a lot of the education came right around go live time. And after our rollout with our, we had a very extensive frequently asked questions um, document and really just talking about it constantly on our team meetings and all of our opportunities to uh, touch base with our pharmacists to get this rolled out. So there was a decision to actually also do a bit of customization of the software. Is that correct, Meredith? Yes, we did a little bit of software customization. Some things that we thought about just because we were really interested in data analytics and what we could you know, collect on the back end um, and look at retrospectively, we did require our pharmacists to enter in, you know, otherwise what we would call treatment tags or patient-specific information, um, specifically the hospital sites, the patient care unit, uh, the indication for vancomycin, any co-medications, and what organism we were treating, just to help facilitate some of that analytics piece retrospectively. Another customization decision was around, you know, do we have one patient list within MIPD software or because we're a multi-site health system, do we have multiple patient lists and that correspond to each site? Um, and we ultimately went with the decision to do one patient list. I think we're really glad that we did because it has really helped to streamline transitions of care when patients are especially, I mean, we get patients transferred from a few NICU sites to us. And so having one patient list, patients accessible at any site at any time within the MIPD software is, I think, really helpful. So, Elizabeth, it's been implemented. You've, you've done all this education. How has the staff, how have the pharmacists adapted? I think really well. I mean, even looking back and kind of reflecting on this process through this publication, and you know, even as we're talking today, I just think of how gigantic this was. And this is kind of business as usual now for our pharmacists. And we are continuing to track information. And you know, Meredith alluded to some of our data analytics that we're really interested in because we would love to be able to uh, characterize in the future, you know. How has this benefited our patients and, you know, our pharmacists workload or their, how they get their work done? You know, does it, does it save our pharmacist time? Does it save uh, blood draws? Does it save undesirable outcomes like renal dysfunction, things like that? So I think those are the things that we're really excited to start, um, start thinking about in the future and figuring out how this whole process has affected our institution. So have the physicians and nurses even, other than getting good patient outcomes, have they have they noticed the change? 
That's a great question. I will say that we heard we have very engaged um, infectious disease providers who helped us on this project, and you know they were on board with us from the start. Other than that, we just have not heard a whole lot, and I think that really speaks to the pharmacists at our institution just owning this process from start to finish. You know, of vancomycin ordering and monitoring, and so this hasn't changed their practice very much at all. It's changed our pharmacist practice quite a bit. Our nurses like it because we don't get on them as much about the timing of the uh, of the draw and our, our lab services as well for those um, that are drawn by lab um, because that's not quite as imperative. Uh, we used to um, be kind of sticklers with uh, making sure everything got drawn on time and that's just not as huge of a focus anymore, but I think that's probably the biggest change in their workflow. Meredith, there were some other considerations as well that you raise in the article, ranging from what you do with the model as the child ages to covariates that need to be considered, really just some of the overarching issues around vancomycin therapeutic drug monitoring and what to do in extremely premature neonates. Can you talk about some of those a bit and you know where you went with those considerations? Sure. You know, Dan, I think one of the most challenging things is, and something that MIPD software I think is going to continue to evolve to try and get a better target is at what point do you consider a neonate a pediatric patient? And it's something that we, you know, we struggle in clinical practice to even define. You have a, you know, say you have a premature neonate that was born at 25 weeks. They're three months old and their postmenstrual age is now 37 weeks. Are they a neonate? Are they a pediatric patient? And how what model should we be using to dose their vancomycin? And so based on, you know, some internal review from our MIPD software, they advised to use the neonatal model in patients who were up to three months of age or if their postmenstrual age was less than 52 weeks. So it's something I think that is going to continue to evolve, but something I think that we have to be really mindful when we adopt MIPD software in this population. And some other things, I think, too, extremely premature neonates, they're tricky. They're really challenging. While we have had some good success with the firmware model, I think that in an ideal world, we would have a PKPD model of extremely premature neonates, and we define that as a patient's born with a gestational age of less than 27 weeks, a model that we can use specifically for them that gives us good predictions. And until then, we can do the best we can with the models that we have, but it is challenging to know if we're truly doing the right thing at all times. And there you had age considerations on two ends of the spectrum from the extremely premature neonate to when the child is progressing from being considered a neonate to a pediatric patient. But there are other covariants that you considered as well. What were some of those? Yes, other covariates that we had to take into account were really what has been shown in the literature to be significant covariates. You know, they they have an impact on Bayesian AUC estimations. And in addition to postmenstrual age, that is weight and that's serum creatinine. Weight, I can talk about that one. You know, when when we integrated our MIPD software into EPIC, our electronic health record, we had to make the determination of what weight gets pulled into the 
into the MIPD software to use? Is it the dosing weight that's usually, you know, drawn once weekly and is more reflective of a dry weight? Or do we use a neonate's actual weight? Um, we went with actual weight given the relatively large, larger distribution, volume distribution of vancomycin and, and certainly high volume distribution of, of NICU patients, um, these little, little bags of water as we call them. So, you know, that was something we had to consider. And then in regard to serum creatinine assay, I'm really thankful for the pharmacists that we had on our team to really ask this question of what is the serum creatinine assay that we use at our site? Because there's a variety out there. Um, Different serum creatinine assays include the Jaffe method, IDMS, enzymatic methods, and we know that the Jaffe method has been shown to falsely elevate serum creatinine values when we use that in the Schwartz equation. And so could that have an impact on estimating renal function and then therefore our AUC? And it probably does. And so we felt that it was very important to ensure that we we're making note of the correct serum creatinine assay that we were using. And then our we let our MIPD software know about that. And then they can essentially default that on the back end to make sure that the calculations are, are appropriate. Got it. So Elizabeth, taking a look back and you've talked about how you've done that through the article and even in the discussion today, if you were thinking about advice that you would give to leaders in other children's hospitals around the country who are going uh, through a similar process. What are maybe the top two or three things that you would advise them in terms of uh, successfully managing a transition like this? Yeah, I think that was really kind of the, the goal of our entire paper was just trying to kind of lay out all the things that we would have wished that we had known when we started this. And, you know, I think it depends a little bit on the software that you choose, what all of those questions are going to be. But I would say even in that selection process of really understanding who are the, uh, especially populations that your institution serves, and can this software accommodate those? Or what decisions have to be made in order to most appropriately accommodate those specialty populations. And then I think that the second part is just really making sure that you have the right people at the table. We caught some stuff early on, um, but even, uh, you know, as Meredith spoke to, even after we rolled out our frontline pharmacists, were still catching things that we hadn't really thought about, or we were surprised by things that we heard from the software vendor that we hadn't really thought about before. And so just making sure that you have representatives of these specialty populations, you know, specifically in this case, NICU, and who can really speak to the uniqueness of your population. And, you know, for us, it was really that, what do we do with those teeny tiny ones? Um, what do we do with those extremely low birth weight infants? And then how we age them and how that goes into all the decisions that we made. And so it was very helpful to have everybody on that project team, have those pediatric and neonatal representatives, um, but then also to have our frontline pharmacists understand this software enough to ask the right questions as things went on. So Elizabeth, you make a point there that I think we haven't been explicit about in our discussion today, but this was really part of a larger organizational process in selecting 
software to do Bayesian dosing across the organization. And so it really was ensuring that the needs of the NICU population were considered in that larger population. Did I get that right? Yeah. So we have about 10 hospitals in our health system. We have NICUs at, I think, four different sites. And the vast majority of the neonatal and overall pediatric use is at our flagship hospital. Um, But we had to assume that anything that we do can be used at all of our sites. And like you said, it applies to all of the different populations. So I think that was something that we knew going into this, that while the neonatal population was definitely an important part of the decision-making that we also had to make decisions as an entire health system. And I'm sure that's not unique to us. I think that would uh, very frequently come up in other institutions. But I think we also tried to focus when we wrote this article of it doesn't matter if you're standalone children's hospital or a, a children's hospital with an adult hospital, still thinking about these about all of these factors when you're going in is really beneficial. It's just that you might have to make some, maybe not compromises, but some different decision-making based on if you're just thinking about pediatric populations or if you're thinking about a more global population. So Meredith, what would you add to that in terms of recommendations to your peers around the country when they're going through a transition like this? Great question. I think it's just be thoughtful about who you include in the conversations. And I'm really grateful for all of our pediatric and neonatal pharmacists who were able to weigh in on a lot of these decisions and go about this as a a team effort. I'm really just echoing a lot of what Lisbeth said. And I think it's, I would say too, it'll be important to continue to follow the evidence and and the data regarding, you know, different pharmacokinetic models that become available in this patient population and even our AUC targets in this population that that still remain largely undefined. So it'll be interesting to follow. And with that, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Dr. Meredith Oliver and Dr. Elizabeth Hansen for joining us to discuss their article, Considerations for Implementation of Vancomycin Bayesian Software Monitoring in a Level 4 NICU Population Within a Multi-Site Health System, which was recently published on HHP.org. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary pharmacy practice issues and interviews with HHP authors. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues and via your social media of choice. Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit AJHP.org.